may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Mercy House. Air conditioning broke, I guess. I, I don't know. No, we don't have air conditioning. Um, but if you are elementary age kid, we want to welcome you and uh, to go down to the kids' class. So we're in the book of Jude. So hopefully you're picking up the Bibles off the floor, opening up your Bible app maybe, um, following along. I think it would be helpful. There will definitely be some scriptures on the screen here, but I think it's always helpful. So Jude's toward the, the back of the Bible. It's, it's almost the end. It's right there before Revelation. So Jude so far, week one, we said that he's exhorting us to know the faith. Right? to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith. And we said that was the essential truth claims uh, of the Bible. And that partly why he's saying that is because there's some false teachers that are in the church that's receiving uh, this letter. And so he's kind of calling out these false teachers. And then week two, he explored why these false teachers were doing what they were doing and what would the outcome be if they were not stopped. And it was a heavy sermon. Last week, Pretty severe sermon. Uh, Jude has uh, Old Testament image after Old Testament image of judgment, and it just kind of builds and builds and builds and builds. And even got a little anonymous note uh, from someone who, who was not happy with, with my sermon. Um, and I would rather they not be anonymous. I'd rather have a conversation about it. But uh, it was interesting. They were like, that sermon didn't have any grace in it, didn't have any mercy in it. And I did listen to the sermon. It, it did have some grace and mercy. But I think what we sometimes don't understand is that grace and, it's gracious and merciful to warn people of real danger. I think that's why you see Jude handling this the way that he is. He's warning them. He's saying, the bridge is out ahead, right? If, if, if he wasn't warning us of some, some imminent danger, it would not be merciful, it would not be, would not be gracious. So there is a lot of warning, and it is severe. Um, he then moves in this next passage that we look at today, how to have a healthy church. Right? So he's, he's dealing with the unhealthy situation in this particular church. He just doesn't leave them there. He just doesn't say, you better take care of these false teachers. He, he does move to the next step and say, okay, now moving ahead, here's how you can remain healthy. Um, we start here with, with the, the first round of, of what it takes to be a healthy church in verse 17 of Jude. It says, You must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, quote, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So number one, kind of back to last week's theme, heed the warnings about false teachers. Want to have a healthy church? You need to heed the warnings about false teachers. And he says you shouldn't be surprised. The apostles warned you that this would happen, that there would be people in the church that would try to deconstruct the essential truth claims of the gospel. And the reason the apostles were warning about that is because Jesus had warned them that that kind of thing might happen. And so we want to take seriously. Now, he gives some insight into how we know who they are. Again, um, last week there was a lot of that, and some of this is rehashing last week. But one of the things he says about these uh, false teachers inside the church is that they scoff at the truth. 
Another word we might use is they mock the truth. They, they try to make a mockery of the truth. Now, I think that's very insightful because they're not making sound arguments against the truth. It's not like they're, they're like, we really thought through this and we believe that we have the right interpretation of the most holy scripture. They're not, they're not doing that. They're, they're trying to just demonize, dehumanize, belittle their opponents, which we've got to admit, that is sort of the spirit of our age right now, at, le at least in the U.S., is you, you don't actually have a logical conversation with your opponent. You just mock your opponent. You scoff at your opponent. You de demonize, dehumanize. And you do that when you don't really have an argument to stand on. And that's the predicament that these false teachers are in. They really don't have an argument to stand on, so what do they have left? They have to scoff and mock. He also says they're following their ungodly passions. This is what he's been saying all throughout the, the text. And then we talked about this last week. But the reason they're wanting to compromise on the gospel truth is so that they can then compromise on the practice of gospel truth. And so they can give in to these ungodly passions, which we said last week was a desire for money and for sex and for power. That these three things were driving their false teaching. And then thirdly, he says they cause divisions in the church. So they scoff at the truth, follow ungodly passions, they cause division in the church. And the reason they're doing that is because right doctrine contributes to unity in the church. It's actually the core of what unifies the church. I think what people misunderstand is they think that compromising on the essential truth claims of the gospel will actually bring unity. And it'll make the tent bigger. It'll bring more people in. If we don't get all worked up about these essential truth claims, we'll actually create more unity. And, and this, again, this is the spirit of our age. The way we unify ourselves is that we just go to the lowest common denominator. And the lowest common denominator is let's just be nice. Just be nice. Right? You heard this in this uh, mission statement paragraph that came from one of the, the downtown local churches where they say we're cradle congregationalists, mystics, activists, recovering fundamentalists, former Roman Catholics and evangelicals. We're Buddhists and agnostics. Rather than endorsing a single creed, we covenant to respect and to care for each other. You see what they're doing there. They're saying we are not going to hold to any essential truth claim, any creed. We're going to lower it to the lowest common denominator, which is just be nice. Just be nice. But that does not bring unity, not real unity. I mean, it might keep some people coming to your service or in the building, but it is not going to unify in the way that Jesus had in mind regarding the church. It would be like... Let's say there was a football team called the Patriots. And they had a coach named Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick gave them the game plan. And there were a few players on the team that wanted to run some plays that Bill Belichick did not want to run. And so when Bill Belichick was not watching, those players were implementing those plays in the practice. And that would be pretty bad. 
I don't think Coach Belichick would be very happy with them. I don't think they would last very long. But it would be bad, and it would, it would kind of it would be a detriment to the team, but they would still be a football team. They just have some issues. They have some problems. But what if a third of the players on the Patriots decided we want to become a soccer team? And they start working to shift the American football team and the Patriots to a soccer team. That's basically what people are doing when they try to dismantle the essential truth claims of the gospel. You're no longer a church. You're a soccer team. I'm not saying soccer's bad, okay? That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But you get what I'm saying, right? You're not a church anymore. You're not a football team anymore. You, you've, you've shifted over to a completely different thing. So we must heed the warnings regarding false teachers. Now, in the next couple of points, he, he moves towards more positive kind of let's, let's build the unity. Uh, verse 20, he says, but you, beloved... Again, I, I got to point that out. I think he says that three times. He calls them beloved. Right? He's rolling out all this, all, last week's, all these judgments from the Old Testament. But he's doing it in love. He's saying, I, look, I love you. I'm warning you. Right? And then he says, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. So let's take, there's two, two, two phrases there. Pretty important. This is, this is an amazing verse, right? So he says, build one another up in the most holy faith. Now, he's harkening back to what he said, contend for, quote, the faith, right? The essential truth claims of the Bible. And, and that we're supposed to be building each other up with those essential truth claims of the Christian faith. This unifies the church. This strengthens the church. We never outgrow the essential truth claims of the Christian faith. Now, this doesn't mean that they are stale and boring and, and we're just saying the same thing over and over and over again, but we're constantly preaching those truth claims, talking about those truth claims, singing in our worship about those truth claims, and, and there's a freshness to them always. But it does always go back to these same essential truth claims. Think of it this way. Has anybody been to the uh, Acadia National Park in Maine? Been there, a few, few of you? It's like one of my favorite places on the planet, really. It's an amazing place. Um, it's got 49,000 acres in this park. It takes like 30 minutes just to drive through like a third of it. They have this little loop where you can see the coastline. It's amazing. Uh, there's lakes, there's beaches, there's mountains, there's trails. Uh, there's 1,700 identified plants and animals. There's these crazy amazing weather patterns that occur because it's right on the ocean going into mountains. Uh, there's new things to explore like every season. So you could, you could explore something different in the winter that you explore in the fall, in the spring, in the summer. About 3.5 million people make their way up to uh, kind of the mid-coast of Maine every year to, to, to find this. And, and would anyone say, I fully 100% explored Acadia National Park? No. You just can't. You just can't get to all of it. You can't explore it enough. And, and it would be silly for us to just read about it in a book, right, or see pictures of it, and not go and see it. And so to, to go and see it is like the next level. But then once you go and see it, you realize there's so much more that you have yet 
to explore. And the gospel is like this. The, the psalmist talks about deep calls to deep, right? You, you wade into the gospel, you, you're, you're thinking, oh, it's like a foot deep. It's not that bad. Boom. And then you realize there's fathoms and fathoms and fathoms of depth in that gospel, right? So we're, we're constantly building one another up in the most holy faith. It also says we are praying in the Holy Spirit. This is incredibly uh, crucial to understand here. Uh, think about the difference between you yourself just showing up at Acadia National Park. Maybe you got your, you got your little booklet and you're trying to figure out what, what the place is about as opposed to getting a personal tour guide that's taking you through the park and helping you to explore the park. Now that would be a whole nother level. Or what if the park itself could take you on a tour of itself? Now that would be amazing. Now that sounds a little crazy, but this is what we have in the gospel, right? God himself, God the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit, who's taking us on the tour. Now he's using the, 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 the book, right? The words in the book, the most holy faith. But he is taking us on a lifelong, literally an eternal tour of the person of God. And the place where we understand God the most is in his gospel, literally called the gospel of God in places in the New Testament. And so the Holy Spirit is supernaturally taking us into this gospel, into a personal relationship with God. Um, Jesus taught this to his disciples. Luke 24, another really important chapter in the Bible. I mean, they're all important, but this, man, this one is so important. Um, this is Jesus post-resurrection. So he's appeared to the disciples in his resurrected form. He says to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. See what he's doing there? Now, here he is, resurrected Jesus. You would think they would just hang out. Like, he'd just like, look at the nail scars. Look, look at the, the scar on my side. I'm resurrected. Isn't this amazing? But what does he do? He's like, okay, Bible study time. It's Bible study time. Let's talk about Moses. Let's talk about Psalms. Let's talk about the prophets. But not only is he doing that, he's, it says supernaturally, he's opening their minds this is what the Holy Spirit does for us. Opens our minds, leads us to understand the text of the Bible. A few verses later in Luke 24, Jesus pretty much says the same thing, right? He says, I said to them, thus is written, it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with the power from on high. So again, he's like, okay, I've told you, I've explained to you the, the gospel in the context of the Old Testament, but don't do anything yet. Wait for the Holy Spirit. You, you cannot effectively and fruitfully be a gospel minister if you don't have the Holy Spirit. We need the most holy faith, and we need the Holy Spirit. Now, notice he, said, he doesn't say, Jude or Jesus, say, 
All you need is the Holy Spirit. Right? He's like, oh, that whole Bible thing. Oh, that's just overrated. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. No. That's not what Jesus says. That's not what Jude says. You need both. You need the Scripture and you need the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, churches tend to move to one side or the other. They tend to lean one way or the other. Uh, the doctrinally sound churches seem more iffy about the work of the Holy Spirit. Anything subjective or personal is immediately rejected out of hand, as opposed to just being tested, which is what you should do about subjective kinds of things, is to test it with the Bible. As opposed to most what they would call themselves spirit-filled churches, and even that, they're like, we're spirit-filled, you're not kind of an attitude, right? And they can show disdain for those who are serious about doctrine, right? And they can treat the Scripture in a very emotional way. They can pull a text out of Scripture and say, God gave me this Scripture, right? And it has no context. There's no understanding of what the original hearers were thinking when they got that. There's no literary genre conversation. There's nothing. It's just, I read this this morning, and God gave me this verse, right? That's not a good way to handle Scripture. And so, again, what we, we tend to do is we lean one way or the other. We're either sort of rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit out of hand, or we're being only subjective and only spiritual and not being willing to place ourselves under sound doctrine. Both can be very arrogant, and we, we, we can look down on the other side, Right? And what Jude seems to be saying is, it needs to be both. It needs to be both. There needs to be a, a clear teaching of the Bible and sound doctrine. And there needs to be an appreciation for the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, a dependence on the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. But, but how, do you, how do you do that, right? How do you pray in the Holy Spirit? What, is, what does he mean when, he, when he's saying that? Well, I think at the very basic level, it means a couple of things. One, it means you're in union with the Holy Spirit and you're in submission to the Holy Spirit. You're in union with the Holy Spirit. All right, so how do you get in union with the Holy Spirit? Well, be, become a Christian, right? Place your faith in Christ. And when that happens, you are in union with the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes to dwell inside of you. You don't have that, then you can't rightly understand truth and doctrine in the Bible. But it also means you're submitting to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. He is God. And so this, this submission to the Holy Spirit as he reveals the truth through his scriptures. Uh, and then, again, you, you see Jesus teaching this kind, kind of an idea, right? John, uh, yeah, John 15, 7 and 8. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. You see what he's doing there? He's saying, if you abide in me, meaning if you have union with me, this is, this, John 15 is where he does this vine and branches thing. And he's like, I'm the vine, you're the branches, so you're connected to me, abide in me, you're in union with me. But my words need to abide in you as well. It's not, it's not just this supernatural mystical thing, but it's in concert with my words, with the word of God. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. 
So see what he's doing there. He's, he's saying, okay, this is what it looks like if you pray in the Spirit. You're in union with Jesus, and His words, His, his Scripture are residing in you. And so if that's happening, then you're able to pray God's will back to Him. That's basically what you're doing. Because He's in union with you in the power of the Holy Spirit, and His words are in you. When you pray, you're praying His will back to Him. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a pastor in the 1800s, uh, in London, he, he says this, so, And so will prayer go back to heaven if it came from heaven? We must shoot the Lord's arrows back to him. It's a great, great way to think about it. God's shooting his arrows towards us, not, not in a hurtful way, but it, it, from, the, from the word of God. We're picking those arrows up and we're going right back at you. Right? You've told, you've told me what, what you want, what your desires are. What you, it looks like when your kingdom comes, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now I'm going to pray that back to you. This is praying in the Spirit. So two practical tips. Two practical tips in regard to how you pray. One is pray before you pray. Pray before you pray. So you're about to pray for a friend. You're about to pray for someone. They're in... They're in trouble, they're having some struggles, and usually here's, here's what we do. We just start praying what just kind of comes into our mind right away, and what usually comes into our mind right away is just alleviate all their suffering, give them a whole bunch of money, and make their life perfect. Amen. Right? And there's nothing wrong with praying that God would alleviate suffering, right? I, I, think, I think that's absolutely uh, okay to do. But is that all that God is doing in the midst of suffering? But we know, no, of course not. We know that, of course, he's doing other things. How do we know that? Because we read it in the Bible. And so not only do you want to pray before you pray to get direction, you want to also be thinking about what does Scripture say about this particular situation. You can even ask the Lord, help, help me with a Scripture. Bring to mind a Scripture that would help me pray. Lord, I don't know how to pray for this. So I was praying for someone this week. They're, they're going, going through a hard time. And I, what came to mind was James 1. So James 1 verse 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So I'm praying for this person. Now I'm praying... Alleviation of suffering, absolutely. God would have mercy on them. But I also started praying for joy. God, would you give them joy in the midst of suffering? How do I know that that's a, an arrow that I can put back towards God? It's because it's right there in the Bible. And you know what happened? I could literally, before my very eyes, see the person's joy increasing. Right? And then praying, God, would you form them spiritually through this time? May this not be a time where they turn to bitterness or anything else negative, may they turn towards you, and may this steadfastness in the midst of this, would that cause them to mature, to be made perfect? That's what that means in that scripture, to be matured in the midst of suffering. I'm, I am fairly confident that God wants to answer that prayer because it's in his word. It's in his word. So pray before you pray and pray God's word back to him. Now, you may be saying, I, just, I don't know my Bible that well. I, I don't know... Any verse? Well, that's another reason to read your Bible. 
so you can pray more rightly. If, you, if you're not reading the scriptures, then you're going to have difficulty knowing what to pray and to pray in the Holy Spirit. And typically what you're praying is what it, whatever you're reading at the time. This is what devotional reading of scripture is. You're reading the Bible and you're praying in light of that scripture that you've just read. You're praying back to God. So oftentimes, whatever it is you're reading, the Holy Spirit's using that, and that is helping to shape the way that you're praying for a particular situation. So we're heeding the warnings about false teachers. We're building ourselves up in the most holy faith. We're praying in the Holy Spirit. And then he says, keep yourselves, verse 21, in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Couple things there. Keep keep yourself in the love of the, of, of, the, of, the, of God the Father, and wait in hope for the second coming of the Son. And there, these are related. These are these are definitely related. How, so how do you do this? How do you keep yourself in the love of God? Well, it's through your ongoing relationship with Jesus. It's through the ongoing relationship with Jesus. Uh, again, in John, you hear Jesus teaching this kind of concept. John fourteen. Verse 20, Jesus says this, In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So see what he's doing there. He's like, well, I'm in union with the Father and I'm in union with you. Well, well, why does that matter? Well, the reason that matters is whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You see what he's doing with all this kind of union conversation. He's like, I'm, I'm in union with the Father, and I'm in union with you. So that means that if through me, you can be in this loving union with the Father. And that's the only way to get to the loving union with the Father. It's through Christ. This is what earlier in that same chapter, John 14, he's like, no one comes to the Father except through me. Right? So the same kind of concept. Like, if you want to be in union with the Father, you want to experience His love, you've got to come through me. He says something similar in later part of that John 14. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. Same kind of concept. He's like, you're in union with me, you're obeying me, and I'm in union with the Father we're going to make our home with you. Jesus, God's, God the Son, and God the Father, via the power of the Spirit, making their home with us. Beautiful picture of, of union. So how do you keep yourself in the love of God? You wait on the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only way to experience love of the Father. Now, what, what does he mean by that? Well, think about what he's saying there. He's saying, I want you to be waiting for the mercy. How can, how can Jesus give us mercy? Well, because he's the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses these, these three names. So he's Lord. That means he's divine. He is God. He's Jesus. That means he is Savior. That's what Jesus means. Yahweh saves. And he is Christ. He's the Messianic King that everyone was waiting on, right? And that he had come once and left, and now he's coming again. And if you're waiting on the Lord Jesus Christ to come and give you mercy, you got right doctrine. You've got right doctrine. 
If you're not waiting on the mercy that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. If, you, if you're saying you're a Christian, but you don't believe you need what the Lord Jesus Christ did for you on the cross to give you mercy, you, you don't understand the essential truth claims. You do not believe the essential truth claims of the gospel. But if you do believe those, you are living in the love of the Father. You've been reconciled to the Father. You who were once an enemy of God because of your sin, and now by grace, by mercy, have been made right with God. If you've not yet placed your faith in Christ for that, I encourage you to do that today. To reach out to Him in faith and trust that the Lord Jesus Christ, He's not just some prophet, He's not just some teacher, He's not some spiritual guru. He is the divine Son of God who's died for our sins so that we could be made right with God the Father. If you're saying, I, I just not there. I, I, I've got questions. I've got things I, I need to talk about. I, I want to encourage you to talk about those. And, 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 and if you're like, I'm not so sure that I want to talk yet, well, I'd encourage you to, as you're slipping out the back exit there, grab a book. There's, there's all kinds of resources back there. That's what they're there for for folks that are exploring, they're investigating the faith, uh, they get taken all the time. It's awesome. I, I'll be walking out, I'll kind of look at the stack and go, huh, like five books just disappeared. That's good. We want them to disappear, okay? Especially if you're investigating the faith. That's what those are for. Now, we may be thinking, all right, so heed the warnings about false teachers. Uh, we, you know, we... we we build each other up in the most holy faith. We're doing this uh, praying in the Holy Spirit. Um, we're, we're waiting on the Son in hope, uh, keeping ourselves in the love of the Father. But isn't church just a little bit harder than that? <laughs> I mean, it sounds pretty simple, right? Like, let's just do the thing and then everything will be all right. We'll stay unified and there'll be no issues. Church is actually harder than that. And I appreciate this next round of verses because Jude is acknowledging that. The church, church is messy. Church can be very, very hard. He says in verse 22, Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So here he's saying, okay, now that we've kind of laid the basics down, now... Let's talk about how we take appropriate action with those in the church that are faltering in their faith and or their practice. Right? Laid the groundwork, and then, okay, here's how you take appropriate action with those in the church who are faltering in their faith or their practice. And so what he's saying is it's a case-by-case -case decision. And this acts absolutely rings true. In pastoral ministry, it's a case-by-case -case kind of a decision. And so he mentions three different kinds of people. I don't think that's necessarily an exhausted list of categories, but it's just a way to kind of illustrate what he's trying to, to, to say. But one, he says that some just, they need mercy. They need mercy, a lot of mercy. They're bruised. They're wounded. They're struggling. They're confused. They need comfort. They, they, they need patience. They need the willingness for the church to, to walk slowly with them as they work through their, their doubts or an issue of, of practice. 
Often these are brand new believers. And they're just brand new to the Bible, brand new to the gospel. And so you get a great amount of patience and mercy with those that might be faltering, both in their beliefs, but also possibly their practice. I remember a young couple that we met. Um, we were playing volleyball. We met this couple. They're really awesome, just fun to be around. We played some volleyball like a few days in a row. And then uh, we invited them to church. And uh, they came, came to church, and they started hearing the gospel. And the, 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 the guy that was in the couple, he decided he wanted to become a Christian. And so he became a Christian. He professed his faith in Christ. We baptized him. Now, along this whole you know, journey, they're living together. They're not married. And they kind of know that that's like not what you do when you follow Jesus. You don't live together um, when you're not married. And so, but, but they were brand new to all of it. And it was just a great amount of patience and mercy. I, I didn't like lay the hammer down, you know. It wasn't like, you better, you know, do this or that. But after a few months, the conversation did happen. And it was a sit down. We had lunch together. And I said, man, I love you guys. I hope you know that. I've walked with you these months. But if you're going to be a follower of Jesus as your pastor, I want to exhort you, don't live together. Right? Cease having sex. Move apart. Right? And it was a hard conversation. And, and it was a very weird conversation, partly because the, the girl, the woman had not yet become a Christian. She's interested and she's kind of leaning in, but she wasn't quite there yet. And so, long story short, eventually they did break up and he went on to follow Jesus, become a chaplain in the army, etc. But, but it was a case-by-case kind of thing. There, there was a great deal of mercy that needed to be displayed in that kind of situation. Now some, Jude says, they need some immediate intervention. Now these are folks who are knowingly rejecting the gospel or rejecting gospel practice. They know what they're doing. And they're kind of in a, in a rebellious way. They're saying, I don't care what is right. I don't care what is true. I want to do this, and I'm going to do it regardless of what the church might say. It's, it's the difference between sort of uh, if, you, if you have children, there's childishness, and then there's like active rebellion. And you know the difference, right? You act, they accidentally spill something. You know, you, you, you're not going to get on to them. You're not going to give them any kind of a punishment. They're children. But when they look you at the, in the face and they knock the milk thing over and they look at you again, you know that was rebellion, right? And I think that, that there's something along those lines in this text, right? It, it's like they know what they're doing. And so those kind of folks need a more immediate intervention. And, and, it, and again, it's why? Because you love them. You love them. They're not going on the path of abundant life with Jesus. They're going on a path of destruction. And so it is a loving thing for the church to then intervene and to do that immediately. This is never easy, never easy, but something that a healthy church does and an unhealthy church doesn't do. Because what happens is a a little uh, contagious disease kind of starts in the church and then it starts to spread. And this is what Jude is concerned about in the church that he's writing to. He's saying some need a a combination of the two, right? They need mercy and they also need a stern warning. And and I think, again, he's saying it's a case-by-case basis. You've got to wisely discern what to do when you're uh, 
appropriately dealing with folks that are not doing what they should in terms of faith or practice. Now, he gives them this little uh, very severe warning, right? He, he, he treats sin like a contagious disease, which it is. He talks about not touching their garment, you know. And, and it's an illustration. I mean, I don't think garments can contaminate you, you know, um, sinfully, spiritually. But it's an illustration to say, take sin seriously. When there is sin in the church, and again, not, not just a new believer who's just kind of figuring the thing out, but someone who's knowingly rebelling against the word of God. It's like a contagious disease. And what happens is it kind of moves its tentacles out into the church, and then it starts to affect the whole culture of the church. And there, there are things that our church wrestles with on, a, on an ongoing basis. Uh, I think apathy sometimes is one of our things in our culture. We're like, eh, it's not, it's not that big a deal. Let's just let that go, right? Kind of an apathetic spirit. Sometimes, sometimes it's immorality. Sometimes somebody is doing something, they're involved in something. We know it, but we just turned a blind eye. We're not going to have that conversation. We don't want to ruffle anyone's feathers. Sometimes it's lack of generosity. Like, well, man, I, we're, we're all struggling. We don't have any money. We, we can't give generously, right? That kind of stuff. Uh, prayerlessness, right? Just like a culture-wide, sometimes a culture-wide prayerlessness. And again, some of these things are just American church culture thing that the infection is bigger than us. That this sort of this American way of thinking about Christianity. Like, yeah, I pray five minutes a day. I mean, I'm amazing. I'm a mature Christian. Really? I mean, no. It's a disease that we have, as, and myself included. Uh, lack of concern for those that are without adequate gospel witness. Right? Both in, in the valley, but also in the nations. That there are people around the world that have no gospel witness. Zero. And many of us as, as believers, we just could care less. We could care less. We're, we're worried about our lives, worried about what we're doing. And, right? Again, I'm not saying these things to, to make you feel bad or condemn you. I'm just, I'm just saying don't think that we don't have our own contagious disease issues. Because we do. But there's hope. There's a great deal of hope. I mean, think about what Jude's doing here. He's writing to a church that has problems. But he's saying, if you have some truth in the power of the Holy Spirit, you, you can be healed. You can repent from these things. You can become a healthy church that is building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. This, this is totally possible for you as a church. So in light of that, let, let's just kind of reflect quickly through these points. And I've just kind of taken those five points. I've made them into four. I've combined a couple of them with this first point. Heed the warnings about false teachers, and take appropriate action to care for those who are faltering in the faith or practice. So take, take seriously these warnings and take appropriate action. So who in the flock that you're aware of is in need of mercy or in need of a more immediate intervention? Are there issues in the church that you're like, oh, someone else will get to that, just turning a blind eye to? That doesn't help the health of the congregation. Like when a congregation gets healthy is, is when the sheep start thinking like shepherds. Instead of th saying, well, those few shepherds that are kind of in charge, they'll take care of it. I'm I don't have to deal with those hard conversations. 
That, that's not a healthy church. A healthy church, when, when you, as, as a member of the church, and I'm talking especially to members in, in this room, right, is, is that you think more like a shepherd than a sheep. And, and you're reaching out to those that you know are faltering in their faith or in their practice. You can always get help in those kinds of situations. Don't feel like you, by yourself, have to deal with a situation. But, but don't just turn a blind eye to it. Grab a few other brothers and sisters in, in the church or leaders if you feel like we need to be involved. But, but let's, let's keep the body healthy. Let's lovingly deal with situations when they come up. Number two, build yourselves up in the faith. You're here today. Well done. You're building yourself up in the faith. That's partly why we meet every week and we build ourselves up in the faith. Uh, as you participate in small groups and discipleship groups, why do we do that? We're building ourselves up in the faith. And your own re reading and studying of Scripture and doctrine, these things build you up in the faith, but they build our congregation up in the faith because now you have more to bring to the table as you function as a member in the body. So we're heeding the warnings. We're building ourselves up in the faith. We're praying in the Holy Spirit. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Try that on for size. Pray before you pray. Don't just kind of throw some emotional type, I just want everyone to feel good prayers. Stop doing that, okay? Stop it. Just ask the Lord, how do I pray? Give me wisdom. I want to pray rightly. Help me see the scriptures and what's in the scriptures. May that inform me. Man, he is eager to answer that prayer. Eager to answer that prayer. Uh, keep in the love of the Father while waiting in the hope for the coming Son. Keep in the love of the Father by waiting in the hope of the coming Son. This is partly what we're doing every time we come to this table. That when Jesus is talking to his disciples on the night in which he's betrayed, the night before his death, and he takes bread, he breaks it, he says to them, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he takes the cup, and after he blesses it, he gives it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you and for many. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And what he says in, in terms of his instructions regarding how often and he didn't, he didn't really say about how often, but how long you should do this, church. You should do this till I come back. Till I come back. And so every time we come to this table, remember his, his, his body broken, his blood poured out. We're, we're saying, Jesus, we are waiting on you. We're not just remembering what you did, which is part of this, but we're also waiting on your coming. This is our hope. And that hope gives us perseverance to keep doing the life of the church, which is not easy. It's not. It's difficult. And for the most part, it's difficult because all of us are sinners, and, and we're doing everything we can to sabotage the church outside of the grace of God and the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. So we know we, we, we want to wait on Him in great hope, knowing that He is pouring out mercy on our congregation. And so as we take this bread and take this cup today, let's, let's be thinking about his, his coming. Let that hope stir you um, and give you the perseverance that we need to continue to be faithful in our church. Those of you here today that are not yet Christians, you, 
you've kind of heard me call you to faith and you're like, nope, not yet, not, not ready for that yet. I'm going to encourage you to stay in your seat during this time of taking the bread and the cup and to pray and to think about what you've heard. Uh, perhaps you want to come back and, and talk. I'm going to be back there with a few other, the staff and others available to pray and come back and talk for a minute. Or you may just need prayer in general. If you want to come back, uh, you can do that or pray for me. But this is for those who, have, uh, who are waiting on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what this supper is for. So let's pray. God, thank you for the, the health and the vitality that we do have in our church. Lord, you have unified us around the most holy faith in the power of your great Holy Spirit. And we have seen much fruit come from that. Lord, our union with you through Christ and uh, the word of God dwelling richly in our congregation. But Lord, we know that, that there's always places in our, in our body that, we're, for one, we're probably just blind to that need uh, transformation and healing and change. So God, just make us aware of that, both in our own individual lives, but also inside the church at large. And Lord, as we take this bread and take this cup, we pray you, you, would, you would bless it and you would help us uh, to be waiting for you, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the mercy that you will give on that day. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.